on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Bertel, number one Neil Gorsuch stan. My name is Aida Osman, and I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm currently um, battling poisoning. Battling? Um, as you know. Oh, yes. She's sick? Um, I had Shake Shack last night. I had Shake oh, Shack sure. last night. Oh, girl. And um, <laughs> I was poisoned by um, <laughs> the employees because they thought I was a cop. <laughs> Or the lactose that knew you were black. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, of course, talking about the ridiculous news that <laughs> happened as I was going to bed last night. And, of course, it's resolved as we all woke up today. Oh, no. Um, three NYPD officers claim that they were intentionally poisoned at a Shake Shack in Manhattan. Girl, this is real. And, of course, the NYPD police union... And, like, the DEA is tweeting um, <laughs> that their officers were intentionally poisoned. Um, you have the president's idiot son <laughs> tweeting about how Democrats are silent about police officers being poisoned oh in God. America. Poisoned. So old-fashioned murder mystery of Shake Shack. <laughs> <laughs> And then what do you know? Chief Rodney Harrison um, of the NYPD at 1.02 a.m. put out, after a thorough investigation by the NYPD's Manhattan South investigators, it has been determined that there was no criminality by Shake Shack's employees. Girl, shut the fuck up. Sit down. They get so much free food. They get so much free food. It's not a bad batches. There's a few poisonous ones. Do the math. That they would impugn the name of the salted caramel shake at Shake Shack. <laughs> the damage has already been done. I know. I mean, obviously, this is a long trend of police officers lying about fast food joints. Like the officer who pretended that someone ate a bite of his McDonald's sandwich and then he had forgotten that he did it. <laughs> and then let's not forget the cop who wrote pig on his Starbucks cup. They're bored. They are bored. They're so bored. They are bored. And actually, that was 4 a.m. New York time. So literally, they just let a conspiracy theory run for hours. And people are asking <laughs> why we want to defund the fucking police. <laughs> Anyway, Shake Shack is trash. You're wrong about that. I hate when you say that. You don't know things. The buns are soggy. No, I'm on Lewis's The buns side. are soggy. Boo, bitch. No. Sorry, sweetie. You were just talking about sogginess, and you were defending in and out which is the emperor's sog on those motherfucking fries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not if you have them fresh. They still be limp, though. Do they throw them from the microwave in your mouth, honey? Because they are <laughs> soggy immediately. They bring me into the in and out um, VIP room and make them right in front of me. 
It's just like Benihana. Wow. Invent whatever Fantasia you have to to get over the fact that you are simply wrong about Shake Shack, which is one of the only friends I have in this whole situation, this whole three-month-long quarantine. The VIP room at In-N-Out is just a Shake Shack, Ira. Yeah, that's right. That's a step up. That's right. Just so you know. It all comes back around. All right, so we've got a pretty packed episode of Keep It this week. We're going to get into Monday's Supreme Court ruling, uh, pretty landmark ruling uh, with a lot to discuss. We will get into the Oscars and their new plans for inclusivity and diversifying nominees across categories. We're also going to talk about Dave Chappelle's new stand-up special and we'll be joined by Drew Dixon to talk about the new HBO Max documentary on the record. We'll be right back. As an early keeper to Arizona Republicans who, on a party line vote earlier this year, advanced HB 2706, a bill that would restrict transgender students from participating in sports teams that correspond with their gender identity. If the bill becomes law, any student at Arizona's public and private schools, including K-12 schools, community colleges, and universities, would be able to dispute an athlete's gender. This bill discriminates and further stigmatizes trans students, and it threatens the privacy of all Arizonans by forcing people to take genetic tests. If you think Arizona needs some new leadership, go to votesaveamerica.com slash adopt dash a dash state and Adopt Arizona. You'll be J.K. rolling in the aisles at this bullshit in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Crooked has a new podcast, Unholier Than Thou. Award-winning journalist, editor, and great person to get a mani-pedi with in Tribeca, Philip Picardi is on a quest to better understand his relationship with spirituality by learning how faith plays a role in other people's lives. The first two episodes are out now, and they are fantastic, if I do say so myself. And I just did. Episode one looks at miracles in the emergency room, and episode two explores how religion is used by politicians. So stop watching reruns of Touched by an Angel and subscribe to Unholier Than Thou on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, and we're back, and let's get into some news, some surprisingly good news for once. Okay. You know, on Monday, the Supreme Court ruled in a 6-3 decision that the language of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits sex discrimination, applies to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Until this decision, it was legal for more than half of the states to fire an employee for identifying as LGBTQ+, which I feel like was still shocking to a lot of straight people. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Not the evil ones who are busy firing people, (laughs) but um, regular straight people just being like, wow, you could be fired for being trans or for being gay. Yeah, bitch. Read the news. <laughs> it also feels like, while this is a moment of progress, I think most people would look at this headline and think they were reading something from 1977. Right. So, I mean, congrats to us, but also this sounds like the Carter administration or something. <laughs> <laughs> 
you called yourself a gorgeous stan earlier, Lewis. And uh, oh yes, oh my girl, he's done so much for us, and by that oh, I girl. mean this one thing, this one thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know that people love to commend. Republicans and conservatives whenever they do something nice. It's why we are currently praising Mitt Romney for marching for black lives <laughs> and voting to impeach Trump. But um, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority statement in the 6-3 ruling, and his statement actually was pretty funny. Um, if you like law, uh, okay. But, um, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Susan Day on the television series LA Law. Yes, go on. <laughs> One of the phrases that he wrote was Nor is there any such thing as a canon of donut holes in which Congress's failure to speak directly to a specific case that falls within a more general statutory rule creates a tacit exception. Okay, Neil. Let's get Neil on Def Jam. <laughs> He's been dropping these gems, bro. <laughs> um,. I found the entire thing of Neil Gorsuch doing this funny in the sense that like a lot of conservatives were mad about it, mm-hmm. especially people like Ben Shapiro, uh, which was very funny because someone responded to him with a tweet from like 2017 where he wrote, Neil Gorsuch doesn't care about your opinion. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the timeliness of it all. They love contradicting themselves. But I also was annoyed by gay people on Twitter. What am I not? Sure. Who immediately started cheering for Neil Gorsuch and like making jokes like, I guess he was listening to Chromatica. I guess he loves gays now. Do we have to do that? No, please. Every time. Spare me. Every time. I know. If the same gays that I saw be totally silent about Black Lives Matter were just popping out the paint with all these transgender rights, LGBTQ plus ideas. Where were your ideas a week ago? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Yeah. Also, yeah. it doesn't fill me with confidence to praise the Supreme Court for doing, yet again, the bare minimum, another Mitt Romney-level accomplishment, even though it is important for us. Instead of praising the Supreme Court, consider praising the Supremes, 12 number one hits. Then, <laughs> praise Night Court. You know what I'm saying? Marky Post, the uh, timeless stylings of John Larroquette. Supreme Court, they don't need our praise. My favorite episode of Night Court is the one that Jennifer Aniston's in. Is she on Night Court? What? The 30, the 30 Rock episode. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, that, oh, right, with, with the guest stars, et cetera. I thought she did some weird things in the early 90s. You never know if she was on Night Court. I saw Leprechaun. Yeah. From the set of Leprechaun to yeah. Night Court. Uh, um, it's also funny because a lot of the same people who were making the Gorsuch jokes were the exact same people who I recall dragged Gus Kentworthy mm. when he tweeted that he thought that Mitt Romney was hot after Mitt Romney voted to impeach Trump. So consistency is all I'm asking for. <laughs> Neil Gorsuch isn't good either. But it was nice to see Brett Kavanaugh mad. It was nice to see Alito mad. Mm. They truly wrote like 700 paid notes on scandals <laughs> about how mad they were about this decision. But um, I would say that one thing that I am on the fence about was celebrating, as you said, Aida, because, you know, we also just had the previous day, exactly. you know, the March for Black Trans Lives in New York. Um, the Brooklyn Liberation did that, organized by friend of ours, Fran Torado, um, Elio Cruz, and Raquel Willis. Uh, and then, you know, you had a march 
for Black Lives as well in Los Angeles, you know, it was just a reminder that you can't be fired for um, being trans in America now, but, you know, you can still just be killed for it. I know. <laughs> My heart this week has been, like, there's literally, this, even this, I haven't been able to register this as good news. You know, like, mm-hmm. everything has been so heavy and feels deliberate and intentional, and it's a struggling week. It's a struggling week. <laughs> Additionally, there's something about, I don't want to say, reveling in what is, quote-unquote, good news that mm-hmm. feels more like people giving themselves a moment of comfort that is random you know it, it feels like a break from reconciling with harder things we're dealing with right now um and that's not a great feeling either to me yeah no i mean you know i woke up this morning to just like a text from my mom you know like uh my mom and my sister and grandmother are on the same text thread just messaging me like um Please be safe and like you start using the buddy system. I was like, girl, I don't know where I'm going, but you know, <laughs> this is in this is this is in response to uh, in the past week, like Robert Fuller in Palmdale and like Malcolm Harsh uh, in Victorville being hung from trees in the last week, you know. And so, in the midst of all this, we're dealing with lynchings happening in America again at such a rate that it's reminding you of the Reconstruction era. So, um, right. I mean, it's even it's even difficult to be funny and honest about this, but I have difficulty leaving my house anymore. Like I'm developing this or already like this type of agoraphobia, this fear of leaving the house because of what's going on with coronavirus. But on top of that, I can't hide that I'm a black woman mm-hmm. anywhere I go, you know, so there's a there's a difficulty there. Also, who? yeah, where are you going? And also, who's going to be my buddy, bitch? Who do I want to be? Who can protect me, actually? <laughs> Very few and far between. I feel like we might need to update the words buddy system, too. It just feels so like something that is implemented when you're going to the museum and you're in yes. second grade. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you have to hold hands and it's a field trip, like, protocol. <laughs> also, I, w- would, I would like to mention that today is my brother's birthday. And my brother Sam would have been 25 today had he been alive still. And... You know, this case of my brother's death, of course, is personal to me because it happened to me. But everything that happened with his death and the way he drowned in a hot tub at a local YMCA, the way he was not taken to the hospital in an ambulance that was moving in an emergent state. They didn't turn the lights on. They didn't make any sound. They literally just treated my brother's black body as if it was to be discarded. And, you know, all of this going on with... The, new, the news of Robert Fuller really, really hurt me because, of course, that's blatant discrimination. But then there's also different types of discrimination that we aren't exactly made privy to, like medical discrimination. The way that black bodies are treated at a way, way, way lesser degree of importance. The way black women don't even want to get pregnant because they have a 297% chance of dying in comparison to their white women counterparts. So I just wanted to take a moment to recognize my brother and to celebrate his life and remind you guys that there are different types of evil and sometimes you can help by joining STEM fields, by becoming a a health caretaker, by becoming a giver and focusing on health activism as well. So just please be thinking about my brother and thinking about black bodies today and black death and although it surrounds us that we still have to keep each other safe and love one another. And I won't have my brother back, but maybe soon we can start changing the system so thank you guys and thanks for letting me talk about him on the podcast so of course you know and i feel like you're thinking about that on this day you know you 
we were also um, just talking on the phone the other day too about yeah. um, you know the Alua Toyin Salau story, yeah. you know, like a 19 year old Black Lives Matter activist who, you know, she was in Tallahassee fighting for Tony McDade, you know, like yeah. here's an instance of a black woman, you know, fighting for a black trans man who was killed. And, um, you know, she tweeted about her own sexual assault and then went missing for nine days and was found on June 15th dead, you know? So, yeah. There are, of course, moments to be celebrating in the midst of this. You know, I'm very happy about the Supreme Court case, but it does feel like it's something that should have happened a long time ago, right? It does feel like things happening this week are things that happened a long time ago, and they are still happening. I only hope that Toyin's voice is further amplified, because the video of her that's been shared around... My God. What she says is so powerful, she gives voice to the urgency of this particular moment and to the pain and trauma that uh, black people live with. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope more people learn who she is because what happened to her is so hideous and horrifying. And it feels like the 92nd horrible news story we've heard about in the past few weeks. And I don't want people to look at it less because they've already heard 91 others. Yeah. And I don't want to insinuate that her being younger makes this even more egregious because it, it still does. But I was going through her Twitter the other day and found her, a photo of her posting that said she was 18. So we, you know, we are circulating this narrative that she's 19, but we also don't have the proper information because we know that her family is insidious and has been taking money from her and abusing her. I mean, Clarkisha Kent, a writer who I follow, talks about how we failed this woman in every single regard for every single year of her life. We all failed her. It's very frustrating and hits so close to home. But I also want to encourage us, especially as women who are survivors, and we're so fortunate also to have Drew coming on later, and we'll talk about it then, but to encourage us to not hold fear in our heart, but to learn how to start protecting one another and to learn how to give ourselves these kind of cushions so that when we do tell our stories, we already have support systems. And if we can move in that direction instead of the direction of fear, hopefully Toyin's death will not go in vain. Whew. Yeah, you know, I mean, talking about looking through her Twitter, right? I mean, yeah, I feel like I did that one night with Breonna Taylor's Twitter, just like scrolling through it. I know. Seeing someone who was excited about 2020, about her year. And that's the case, too, you know, that like we're like, don't forget twins. Um, same for Breonna, you know? I mean, like there's this passing of Breonna's law. Yeah. Um, in Louisville, but... Um, the cops that killed her haven't been arrested. So can we get that retroactively is the question. Right. Obviously, then you have the Supreme Court who heard the um, case on, you know, firing LGBTQ plus people. But um, they also neglected to mm-hmm. uh, hear anything on qualified immunity, which, of course, is um, how police officers get away with everything. Of course. Like pretending to be sick. Uh, going back to something lighthearted but still ridiculous that we just talked about (laughs) Uh, in the midst of all this you have police officer unions pushing out conspiracy theories that Shake Shack employees are poisoning police officers like what the fuck is going on they are the problem (laughs) these privately owned police institutions that are able to bail out every single fucking police officer they are the problem and if we could figure out how to dismantle them, maybe we'd have a better fucking place. But, woo! Oh. It makes me want Shake Shack. I think I'm personally okay with <laughs> calling 
the NYPD Chicken Shack, which is also my oh, favorite thing to get at Shake Shack. See how that worked out for me? D- doesn't the chicken in Chicken Shack have an apostrophe in it? It does. Yeah. Is it not real chicken? That, 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 it is real chicken, but they put the apostrophe in it, and I think that that's another reason it just like disgusts me. Yeah, that's atrocious. It's not an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It could be worse. But if it was an exclamation point, then... Uh. <laughs> Imagine. Well, in some other news, <laughs> uh, on Friday, uh, the Academy released guidelines intended to diversify nominees across categories in response to national pressure to elevate the voices and work of people of color, though they won't be enacted for this year's Oscars, which are still in <laughs> flux. And some of the details are still blurry. Uh, they are a public acknowledgement of the Academy's failures and the beginnings of an attempt to remedy them. <laughs> I just wonder how effective this will be. I mean, these are the kind of rules that I feel like are built for workarounds. That said, I feel like if anybody feels the heat to change what the fuck they are and, and quote unquote gain relevance, which has long been the Oscars problem, it is the Oscars. So I guess I'm hopeful about it. This is so stupid. I'm, I mean, I, I want to be hopeful about it, but the fact that they have these like conditional changes that they still can't make for this year, what is stopping you from changing things right now? What is stopping you from getting rid of the gendered categories like we're talking about doing? We have been talking about doing. I don't believe it. After receiving an invitation to join the nominating committee for the SAG Awards, non-binary billions actor Asia Kate Dillon penned an open letter in Variety calling for the abolition of gendered performance categories in general. Yep. Um, But I will say that I am also one of the people who worries about getting rid of gender categories at the Oscars just because I know know Hollywood and I know that they'll just nominate a bunch of fucking men. Right. Or you'll have to go through the process of shaming them into voting for female performances, which is also no fun. Yeah. Yes. Or also, I mean, Hollywood only allows like three non-binary actors to have success at any given year. So we won't have a pool of choices for a non-binary category until like 2050. (laughs) It is interesting though, because I feel like this sort of thing is inevitable. I mean, the reason there are gendered categories in the first place is that there's an idea that all male actors are technically eligible for the same pool of male roles, and the same goes for female actors mm-hmm. and female roles. But obviously that's not true, even if you look at the Oscars history. Like, Linda Hunt won an Oscar for playing a man, just did it. And then we gave her a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. So it's one of these things where... Asia Kate Dillon bringing this up, even just in context of the SAG Awards, calls to mind that these things will be changed eventually. And what worries me, because I'm obviously an Oscar stand pathologically, is that I wonder if it's the beginning of a reckoning that rewarding performances in a ceremony is just not an effective way of celebrating them. Right. So I thank Asia Kate Dillon for calling out the gender categories. But I also want award ceremonies, and I don't want this to be the first domino. I'm sorry if that's a fallacy of logic. <laughs> You know what I want? I want them to stop harping on the fact that we have gendered categories, just remove genders from categories, and fix the makeup of the academy, and then hopefully we'll be in a situation where only not only is it that white men are being put up for our fantasy category that is totally non-gendered. Don't just fix the makeup of the categories. Fix the makeup in films, too. I mean, Gary Oldman fix. won for playing a potato <laughs> in The Darkest Hour. <laughs> I also am slightly worried... That is very funny. I'm also slightly worried that if you have no gendered categories, that means there are fewer winners, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's now one category for lead and one category for supporting. So maybe yeah, we'll have to less. move to 
a ranking system. Like there's first, second, and third, which is another creepy vibe. Well, they could also borrow from the Globes and do it you know, genres, uh, separate comedy yeah. and drama. Yep. Which I think they should be doing anyway. I think we talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm on the fence about that because I think it's fun to weigh the gravitas of a dramatic performance with the skill that a comedy performance takes. But at the mm-hmm. same time, that's a very inexact science. And I'm sure we, you know, I'm, I'm positive we sway way more dramatic when it comes to awarding performances. So, Well, they also just tend to ignore comedy performances in general, right? Right. In the Oscars. We're sort of past the point when they elevate them in the first place. So dividing them might actually do something. Also, speaking of the Oscars just being dumb in general, since they're moving the show date to April 25th, they're now extending the eligibility period by two months, and it means that the show will honor films released between January 1st, 2020, and February 28th, 2021. And... It's annoying because I feel like the whole point of us getting the Oscars next year was it was going to be really interesting just on how films were released this year in the middle of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And I feel like by extending it, now we're going to have that traditional like holiday season where, you know, all of the Oscar bait films were dumped. Now I feel like they're just Mm going to be dumped like in January and February so that they can be eligible for the Oscars. And that goes to another thing that I dislike about the Oscars. It's you can never have the excitement of a performance that's like really good and thinking like, oh, maybe it's going to win or maybe people will still be remembering it when the Oscars rolls around because everything gets dictated by this awful award season where studios all of a sudden decide these are the films that are going to be Oscar films, right? And so they keep pushing them, and we decide immediately, like, this person's going to be running away with the category or something. Mm-hmm. The campaigning vibe of Oscar season, I do think, is dirty and, and, and limits our view of what we consider an acceptable or noble or award-worthy mm-hmm. performance. But I also think it is hilarious that the window is being extended two months as if somehow we're going to get a bigger flux of movies. It's like, what you're really going to get is Untitled Vin Diesel Project uh, <laughs> eligible for an Oscar now. The Pacifier 2. <laughs> That's when it gets really good, the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want Oscar campaign finance reform. Oh, I, she, And I yeah, want it now. Sure. And I want it now. I want no lobbying <laughs> in Oscar um, campaigns. You know, I want to take out public interests and special groups. <laughs> no Weinsteinian super PACs. Yeah. Anyway, I just really want Birds of Prey to win something. Right? Do people really love that movie? I can't see it because I don't watch movies like that, but do people really love it? <laughs> I like the outfits. He, he, he physically like the outfits. can't he physically can't see it. I mean, uh, he, no, he, right, he no. turns it on. He turns it on and it's like it's just it's just colors. <laughs> I'm suddenly, I'm suddenly like in a bad high school production of The Miracle Worker. Yeah, like flailing about. Yeah. Uh, all right. When we're back, we'll be joined by Drew Dixon. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes. When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my barefoot dreams rub. Now, 
Is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. In December of 2017, former Def Jam A&R executive Drew Dixon, along with Tina Baker and Tony Sally, accused hip-hop mogul Russell Simmons of rape in the New York Times. To date, at least 18 women have made similar accusations, which he has vehemently denied. On the record, a new documentary on HBO Max directed by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering details the stories of these survivors and the pervasiveness of sexual misconduct in the music industry, particularly against black women. Our guest today has led the charge against remaining silent when confronted with abuses of power. Please welcome Drew Dixon. So Drew, one of my first questions I have for you is I'm watching on the record And one of the most interesting things about it, I would say, is it's catching you in real time Mm. as so much of this is unfolding as you're speaking to the New York Times reporters. Uh, Can you just let us know how um, this came to be um, in the first place? And, you know, um, when did they start filming you? Right. So... First of all, thank you for having me. Of course. Oh, yes. my gosh. So thrilled to have you here. Yes. So, you know, when the Me Too moment first started to happen, I was talking with a mom in my daughter's grade at school about it. And we actually exchanged some DMs on Twitter about some of the articles that had come out. And then I mentioned to her kind of in passing that, you know, I knew that the stories about Brett Ratner and Russell Simmons were just scratching the surface. And she said, how do you know? And I said, me too. She said, Brett Ratner. I said, no, Russell Simmons. And I didn't really get into the details, but she offered to introduce me to Jody Cantor. And um, I didn't even know she knew Jody Cantor. I declined to be introduced to her at first, but then at few days later, I ran into this mom again, Liz Garbus. She's a documentary filmmaker herself at a parents event. And she and I talked about Russell's response to two allegations in which she called the women liars. And that really made me angry. 
And that's when I asked to be introduced to Jody via email. And my plan was to just sort of encourage her to continue investigating because there was more there, but I was not hoping to be personally a part of that. At that point, Liz Garbus asked me if I would talk to her husband, Dan Kogan, who was executive producing a documentary about the Me Too movement with Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. I, mean, I knew Liz's work. I knew Dan's work. I knew Amy and Kirby's work. And I respected them all. And I agreed when they told me that I didn't have to sign a release right away. They would destroy the footage if I changed my mind. But could they at least follow me even while I made my decision because there would be no way to kind of go back and kind of unscramble the egg. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I ended up saying yes, even before I decided to go on the record. Something that stuck out to me about the end of this documentary, you have this one amazing quote. To be honest, your entire interview was just so, I, I just can't stop thinking about how beautifully you tell your horrifying story. I mean, it's just the entire documentary is so memorable. Um, and there are so many great voices in it that everybody must hear. It is such a necessary documentary. But something you said at the end of it was that it's like you pushed pause on a horrifying movie you began watching 20 years ago and then suddenly had to watch the end of. And obviously then, you know, the documentary ends and you film most of this in like 2017. What else has caught up with you since you watched the documentary? Mm, wow. So, yes, I thought that when I decided ultimately to go on the record that I would sort of be dropping off like this suitcase and I would go on with my life and other people would unpack the suitcase and that would be new information for them. But my life would continue the way it was before. What I didn't realize is that by unpacking the suitcase and having to live in a world that knew this happened to me, my relationship to the world would change because suddenly I had to process, I'm a rape victim. And I did not ever want that to be my story. So it was almost like if I don't tell anybody else, then I don't have to tell myself. And suddenly that became part of my identity. And I have to be honest with you, while I was getting messages from some people calling me a hero and a warrior and all of these things, I felt very broken and ashamed for like, a lot of 2018 before I started to grow into feeling proud of myself because I had to go back and feel the feelings of the shame that I'd also just decided to skip. So that was something I never expected. I never expected it to change my own relationship to myself and that information. And, you know, my marriage had been failing for many, many years, but that was sort of like a final argument that I was going to come forward in the New York Times and I was going to participate in this documentary. I guess the other thing that I didn't expect that I'm even still experiencing now, even with the film having come out, I was actually talking to Jenny Lumet literally Wednesday. Mm -hmm. We were talking after, you know, who went on a show and said whatever he said, whatever those words were that I don't even understand yeah. what those words were, but I was talking to Jenny Lumet and we both were saying how we've become unlocked. Like a part of us was just frozen in time. And what I would say to any survivor, you may believe that you're okay and it didn't affect you. And I told myself the same thing. But what I found when I unlocked the box that had the pain and the story, I found all of these parts of myself that I needed too. Some of the best parts of myself were in that same box that I buried in the basement of like my soul. And they reemerged for me, my creativity, my 
some of my like swagger too, like the things <laughs> I lost were there in that same box with the pain. And that's what I would encourage any survivor to explore for herself or for himself or for themselves. There can be parts of yourself that you're missing that you can't get to because they're blocked by the pain. And I would encourage them to explore that. And that's, that was a huge surprise for me. I never expected that. I thought I was fine yeah. and I wasn't fine. Yeah. Well, again, Drew, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, not just with us, but with the world. Um, it was so vital for me and my friend, both of us work in this industry to see that and to see you say the words, I am tired of living like a victim. I want to see what living like a warrior feels like, which changed everything for us because as you are probably not shocked we have also dealt with stories very similar to this in different degrees you know so you touched on also how this thing I hadn't considered all of our assailants my my friends and you included were black men and black women have this affinity to protect black men because what do we do at this point we can't go to the cops and we can't we, we don't know what justice looks like for us. So can you talk a little bit about how black women can grapple with that very convoluted, messed up situation? Yes, yes. And I'm sorry. And I'm also not surprised. You know, I'm finding yeah. out more and more how I was not alone. I was not an anomaly. And this is way too common in our community. And most sexual violence is intraracial. So that's not just us. I mean, that's, that's true for all communities. It's intraracial. It's, you know, most rape and sexual harassment and sexual abuse. It's acquaintance based. It's not like some stranger in an alley with a switchblade. It's somebody, you know, so invariably it's somebody in your community and it's somebody in your culture. Right. But obviously for us, that's so much more complicated. We have to look no further than our sister Toyon who just lost her life. Yeah. A 19 year old woman who was at a BLM protest and literally that is where she met her abuser and she is gone. And we are trying to get bandwidth right now, this very day for her story to occupy space along with the critically important stories of our fallen brothers. So it is complicated. It's complicated because black people get such limited bandwidth and attention in the mainstream media to begin with. So then we have to think about which stories do we want to center? How much can they even process? If they process a story about a dangerous black man, is that the only story that they're gonna consume for a year? And have I now not just been disloyal in some abstract way, but have I now made my son more vulnerable? Have I made my husband, my lover, my cousins, my friends who I love, who are innocent, have I now put a bigger target on their back? Because all that the white gaze can process is like Russell Simmons is a rapist. Therefore, let's bring in more Central Park Five stories and juries believe it. And so it's very complicated. It's not just like, I don't want to be disloyal. It's I have to be strategic. I've got to protect mm -hmm. my, my brothers. Having said that, it took me 22 years to have as much compassion for myself and my sisters as I did for Russell Simmons and my community. And what I'm realizing now is that I wasn't helping my people by keeping my secret. We as a people already have so many obstacles to overcome. The last thing we can afford to do is face the external forces broken on the inside. 
I talk about in the film having gone to Ghana about a year after the rape and being struck by this condemned cell where the black men who attempted to defend the black women who were being raped systematically yeah. day after day in the courtyard, not just because these white slave traders were sadistic, they maybe just wanted to produce a bonus asset. Mm-hmm. I mean, for us as black women, raping us was like a good business decision. That's not true for any other group that I can think of, certainly not for hundreds of years. And so they took the black men who attempted to defend us to this condemned cell to die. And so what I would say to my sisters and my brothers is now that condemned cell is in our head. We're looking away from the suffering of black women and girls. They don't even need to put us in a condemned cell anymore. It's in our minds. It's on our community. Yeah. They don't even have to block our view because we're looking away without even being told. So let's unlock the condemned cell in our head, in our community. Let's look at it. Let's protect each other so that we can be stronger as a community and we can really make progress. That's what I would say. Thank you. One thing I really did enjoy about the um, documentary too is uh, just so much historical context as well that it brings in. I had a friend who had watched it before me, you know, and he was talking about so many things, you know, about, um, you know, just these white patriarchal structures and white supremacy that affect um, so much of our current relationships. And I was like, you know, like what Angela Davis book has he been reading? And then I was watching the documentary and then I was like, oh, wow, this documentary like got into it. Um, So I really, really... um, find this essential viewing for so many people, um, not just because of um, your story, but also just because it feels like it fits into America's story, especially this moment right now more than ever. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to um, ask you a moment that you have in the doc when you were describing, you know, how you put together um, Method Man and Mary J., um, First of all, I loved watching that moment, and it's like an AMC TV drama in the making because you literally were like Don Draper, um, like discussing like, okay, you have this, and this is a hip-hop sonnet, and like forming it together in your brain, and I was like, this is just like watching a genius work, to be honest. And um, then at the end, you're listening to that song as well, Um, but I know that in the film you said that... um, when you cut off part of your life, you stopped listening to the songs that you made. And I want to know if this documentary, if telling your story, if, you know, like revisiting this music has helped you be able to um, put the records back on. Well, that's a great question. It's a work in progress. You know, it was so heartbreaking to listen to all of these records that I helped to make happen and having nothing to show for it. Even after I left the industry, I came back briefly and I worked with John Legend and Estelle and made American Boy together. My son is in that video. So like that was kind of, you know, the last sort of gasp. Mm -hmm. But my kids sort of wanted me to stop telling these stories. You know, we'd be like in Urban Outfitters and like a record would come on that I had something to do with. And they were like, mom, honestly, like, we don't even believe, you know, Kanye, like we don't even have Yeezy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to hear it. And, you know, it was just sort of like, it was depressing, you know? And now that, I mean, I don't even have a credit on that Mary J. Method Man duet because it didn't occur to me that anybody would remotely 
question my role. It was my idea. There were two mixes happening at the same time. Puffy was doing one, but RZA didn't know Puffy was doing one. So I would have to take the reels every day and move them back and forth between the studios <laughs> and rewind them. So RZA couldn't tell wow. and then at the end. That's where the video is shot to the RZA version. <laughs> and I was shocked that I didn't get the credit. That's why I typed the credits for the show soundtrack. I was like, oh, wow. I like legit have to type them. I'm just starting to listen again. You know, I, I sent my best friend a list. Of, she was like, I want to make a Spotify playlist of all your records. And, you know, that I helped to make, you know, I literally sent her the text. Even she was like, I had no idea you were a part of yeah. this one or that one. And I literally am thinking now, can I listen to this playlist? Can I finally listen to it? It's a work in progress, but being seen matters. I guess that's really, again, what I would say to anybody out there. Like you think it doesn't matter. You think you can internalize it. And, but we are products. We're creatures of the world. We're social creatures. It does matter to be seen mm -hmm. and stories matter, you know? And so I'm getting there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I Drew, I, this is such a basic question that maybe our listeners need um, explained, but I realized watching this movie that my idea of what an A&R person does is pretty shallow. <laughs> like, I literally think of an A&R person as somebody who sits at a meeting and is like, One Sweet Day should be the third single. Like, that's it, you know? <laughs> so, so what, can, can you just explain, because you had this role uh, with Russell Simmons that was sort of a catch-all, like you worked with all of mm -hmm. these artists. What did an A&R person do at that time? So there are different kinds of A&R people. Some A&R people read the charts, crunch the numbers, and they like call somebody because the data suggests they're going to be successful. And then they like rinse, repeat. I was really more almost like a music producer. I was more like in the Clive Davis school, which is why we worked so well together. Mm -hmm. It's the old school term, A&R really stands for artists and repertoire. It comes from like the 40s and the 50s when they signed artists like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Judy Garland, who was the artist. And then they found the repertoire of songs for artists that didn't really write. So that's why they all sang a lot of the same standards, like My Way and All of Me and that kind of thing. The A&R person would find the artist and help them find a repertoire of songs. Rock and roll changed that. You suddenly had self-contained artists. So Bruce Springsteen or the Beatles, they didn't need the A&R person to find those songs. They were self-contained, so they developed their own repertoire. So then the A&R person sort of was a sounding board. You know, they would help maybe listen to a bunch of songs and let's focus on these 12 if the artist even wanted their opinion. I was more an A&R person in sort of, well, I did both. So like for Clive, you know, I helped find songs for Whitney, which is more of that old school Judy Garland, Ella Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. you know, version, you know, where where I helped find a Rose Rose for Aretha or Maria Maria for Carlos, you know, or nobody's supposed to be here for Deborah Cox. Mm. But also like I signed Q-Tip and I signed Brand Nubian and they didn't need me to make their record. So I, in that case, was a sounding board. You know, I would mm -hmm. hang out with Q-Tip and he would play songs and we would I would say, you know, I think that one's a winner if you, you know, like, and, or let me help you find a producer or, you know, let me get Loon to be on backup off the wall for foundation. I just happen to really love music. I was like a studio rat. Mm. I love to just be in the studio. Like if I wasn't in the office listening to demos, I was in the studio. And even if I didn't have an artist in the studio, I would ask the people at the front desk, all of whom knew me in New York by then, who's in tonight? Anybody I know? Oh yeah, Pharrell's upstairs. Oh, Clef's upstairs. And I would just like sit in the back and like watch them like, you know, work. And 
I just was that very hands-on ANR person, but not every ANR person is. So mm-hmm. it, it depends. But for me, it was like, I love to be in there and get my hands dirty. And A&R for you stood for around and ready. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very around. It really drove home just like the artistry of that, you know? I mean, like, obviously there's songwriters and musicians, but, you know, like hearing music, too, and having an ear mm-hmm. um, is mm-hmm. artistry, too. I mean, I think all of our listeners know, like, I'm obsessed with, like, Whitney Houston clips. Oh, here we uh, go, and, you know, like, I love <laughs> watching the ones of her Talking about, like, Clive Davis, too, like, just there was a moment talking about how when she met with him, she met him in his office, and, like, they're just, like, listening to music back and forth and seeing that they're, they have the same ear, you know, like, there's, yeah. she's talking about that moment. She's like, I listen to gospel. I'm a hearer of music, mm-hmm. and it's just um, hearing music is an art, and this really drove that home yeah. um, for all yeah. of us. And it was so much fun playing songs for Whitney with Clyde. We would listen to songs, gather <laughs> them in a folder. Oh, wow. And the way she would listen, you could tell. And she's like, all right, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you talked about, and this was, again, very enlightening and very good to see, but you talked about, and as is not uncommon in cases like this, you found out that when you told your story, there were other women who came forward and had experienced the exact same thing. People who worked around Russell Simmons for adjacent to. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of strange solidarity and how important it is? And um, what has strength for you looked like with these women? Um, it was a life-changing moment to find that I wasn't alone. Yeah. Even when I went to the New York Times before Jenny Lumet came out, the two stories that had been made public involved Brett Ratner. Mm-hmm. So they still didn't feel like my story, but I knew because of what happened to me that they were not lying. Just, I was like, oh, he's capable of that for sure. When Jenny Lumet came out, it started to dawn on me, wait, there's a pattern, but still the way she wrote it, it was sort of like, I was like, I don't want to insert my own experience. I don't want to presume like, I'm pretty sure she's saying what I think she's saying, but mm-hmm. I'm jumping ahead. But I, I reached out to every single one of the Russell Simmons survivors that I could. I don't even know why. It just felt like I wanted to, like, I, I reached Sherry Hines. We finally caught up with each other on text. I went through her sister on Facebook. I found out I knew her. We had Facebook friends in common. And it was like the day before I was supposed to leave town for Christmas break. And I swear if I didn't have kids and I didn't have to go home and like get my Santa game together, (laughs) I would have gotten on a train and gone to Harlem so fast to meet her and just hug her. And I couldn't even have told you why Mm -hmm. that mattered to me. There was just some power in being together. And oh my God, it wasn't all in our head. And when I met Jenny for the first time, we met in a like, you know, restaurant. They had to bring us tissue because we just kept crying like and they were just like I don't even know what's happening at this table but like I feel like we need to bring you <laughs> those women are not okay <laughs> and and then she asked me a question for a detail that she remembered about his bedroom and she said do you remember and I finished her sentence and she just started sobbing yeah and there's this trauma that I didn't realize was the not even being given the permission to own your pain that's a a second layer of trauma. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but it's almost like the Confederate statues. Like Russell was my own Confederate statue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have to walk around in this world and be good with that. And in the same way that I need for them statues to come down, 
Because that's just an insult to what we experienced. Every day we have to deal with that. You are like spitting in our face as the descendants of enslaved human beings. Russell Simmons being a yogi and a philanthropist and a hero and a book and do you and whatever was like my own living, breathing Confederate statue. Mm -hmm. I needed his statue to come down. And I didn't even know that I needed it to come down. I didn't even know what it was doing to me, mm-hmm. having to be okay with that. And holding space with these other women, I had different relationships with the women. Some of us are closer than others. We have personalities, we have different ways of processing our pain. We're at different stages in our processing. So I've also had to learn that. Not everybody wants to be as close as the other person and it's not healthy. But in some cases it's like me and Sherry are like, Like we love each other, you know, and I love them all, but we are holding space in a way that is so healing because there's this part of you that feels crazy until you can just say it out loud and you're free and you look at each other and you're like, oh my God, what a relief, what a relief. Thank you so much. (laughs) My heart. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Drew. I mean, obviously, we could talk to you for hours. I mean, thank you. It, it was such a joy to watch you in um, the documentary. Um, on the record, as I said, is essential viewing. Um, people should hunt it down on HBO Max. Hunt it down. It's right there. Uh, there's no hunting to do. <laughs> you watch will it. find it. Yes, you will find it. <laughs> yes. Like. You got like a promo code. I'm like, this is seven day free trial. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had HBO Go, so it just appeared on my TV like that U2 album. It was just there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. On Thursday night, Dave Chappelle released a new special, 846, on Netflix's YouTube channel. Filmed in front of a socially distanced audience, it was an emotional response to the murder of George Floyd. He talks about, among other things, the insidious spirit of Candace Owens, the brutality of policing in general, and the leadership and bravery of the protesters. Uh, So what did we think? Well, I will just say this. The past few years, being a young black woman who was a fan of Dave Chappelle have been miserable. Yeah. Have been so difficult. I've had to redefine everything I know. I, I love Dave Chappelle. I really have always valued what he says, and I've always found him very funny. But this video essay, stand-up set sort of situation, didn't touch on everything that I would have liked it to touch on. But for what it did operate as, I'm very happy and satisfied with some of the things that he said. But otherwise, I still have many critiques. He doesn't mention trans people. He only mentions trans people when he uses them for butts of jokes. Right. He doesn't mention women in this. As if he doesn't have a daughter and a wife. He doesn't, like, he doesn't have a whole black daughter. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely a lot of issues with it. But I was very impressed by his ability to connect 
every single aspect of his own life and somehow make that resemble black be what it means to be a black man. What did you feel? I think also something I I liked about this that I wouldn't say I would like in almost any other context is he has an open notebook and it sort of seems like sort of seems like it's a, it's a trick really that he's piecing it all together that in a way it's coming to him you know uh, uh phrase by phrase and then suddenly you'll realize there's a hard segue coming into you know horrible information about George Floyd and it's and it's yep. been brilliantly plotted and I think there's not just a suspense in figuring out where he's going, but also something authentic about just wrapping your head around this whole situation. Like there's, it, it, it put a voice to the kind of the, the, the way we actually feel inarticulate, even though he is being very articulate mm-hmm. in the special. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting too, is the comparisons that it got between Nanette and this, which I don't think that they're, similar at all they're not uh and i think that people are just oh there's no like hard jokes in it so yeah must be nanette <laughs> well i will say <laughs> i feel like we largely avoided the conversation about is this really stand-up there aren't enough jokes in it whatever that nanette i felt was yeah. saddled with because mm. what i really feel like that whole conversation was was a smokescreen for i feel resentful for having to listen to this woman i would have otherwise ignored mm-hmm. yes you know what but dave i think it's like this these new innovative ways of talking about stand-up like you look at drew michael's special on hbo where he doesn't have an audience and nanette who you know was lauded and awarded for the beauty of the change in that style but um dave Chappelle might get a little webby for this he really might but people are gonna need to understand that it is a new way of of speaking and telling jokes you mentioned too about you know like as a black woman you know listening to Chappelle and it's uh, there's constantly this cognitive dissonance you know um for, for so much of the entertainment uh I mean first of all we just talked to Drew uh Dixon and um one yep. of the things and on the record that I was even thinking about was she was talking about coming up in hip-hop in the 90s you know when um there was that slant towards you know um bitch this how that etc and you know you just have to sort of like distance yourself um and then she didn't realize later like what sort of impact it had right this one doesn't mention like trans people you know but like we we still had netflix giving him money to denigrate trans people yep um before you know and that still exists there and it's something that he would trot out as the butt of jokes or um mention like oh I have a trans friend you know and it's like um there's a thing of like utility you know I think you could say um of so many of the other people who aren't cis straight black men in Dave Chappelle's life about they're only useful to him either for a joke or um to back up a joke you know um Mm -hmm. and especially in this moment where um we need to remind people that black trans lives matter Um, i could definitely see why people are like they don't want to fuck with this special um but it also becomes a like unimpeachable thing because it is about george floyd and police brutality right yeah it still has its points points were made girl (laughs) it still has its points but you know like well, you have to remember, like, that James Baldwin quote, you know, like, we must fight for your life as though it were our own, you know, because, like, if they take you in the morning, they come for us at night. Yeah. And it's like, he just doesn't seem to 
have any sort of regard, I guess, you know, for LGBTQ plus people, you know, because there's no mention of trans people, but there was a mention of Don Lemon. And what I'm really interested in is the fact that this mention of Don Lemon was cut from the special. So when it first was went to YouTube... That's where I saw it, and that was there. Uh, yeah, what, so when it first went to YouTube, there was closed captioning on it. And early viewers of it found a riff on Don Lemon that is not reflected in the dialogue that you're hearing. Yeah. And so this Don Lemon joke was clearly cut, but the closed captioning still had it. And then closed captioning was disabled. Wow. Um, and then um, it went back, and now it's gone. Um, there are clips of it online, and it was reported um, by Craig Jenkins and Vulture. Um, but basically what he said was, um, you know, he starts talking about Don Lemon asking, where are the celebrities um, talking about this? And I, I will agree that I think it's, it's Don to constantly be like, where are the celebrities and talking about this Black Lives Matter? It's just like, of course, someone's going to be like, what, what is Matthew Settle? What does Kelly Rutherford think of Black Lives Matter? I'm like, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> but he talks about Don Lemon and says, Don Lemon is a funny newscaster because he's clearly gay, but he's the anomaly. He's black and gay, but unlike my other black and gay friends, he's got this weird self-righteousness. Wow. And then he prepares to do an impression of him. Um, I didn't see this. This wasn't on YouTube. It was only in the closed captioning initially. Wow. Um, that clip is never there. But, you know, it reminds me, too, that we're not useful for him, you know? And we're no, yep. he doesn't see queer black men as a thing, you know? And I think the self-righteousness thing is him equating Don Lemon's self-righteousness, his uppityness to his gayness, which is a connection to whiteness for him and for so many like cis black men who like try to exclude like um, black women and trans women and um, black queer men from like the Black Lives Matter movement um, yeah. writ large, you know? And I would say that, of course, your black gay friends, friend probably, um, <laughs> don't have this weird self-righteousness around you because one, if they're in that space that you're in, they're probably of a status that allows them to be in that space. Um, and they're not rocking the boat with you the same way he's not rocking you know the boat when it comes to economic disparity and shit yeah. you know because he's rich now you know and he's brought that up before um and so it just shows that it's more of the same to be honest yep. and um i would say that the only thing that interests me about it is i want to know who cut it mm. because i assume like he has final cut etc it's going to say whatever he wants to say so i'm like did netflix cut it um, or did Dave Chappelle actually, in retrospect, sort of realize, oh, this message that I actually need to say about George Floyd, like, don't fuck it up by, like, me saying some stupid shit about Don Lemon being gay and self-righteous. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Dave Chappelle. I, I think he's smart enough to understand that and that it was cloudying up his message. But I also think you're right that it's so fucked up to insinuate that black gay men are performing a type of whiteness or this, you know, exactly what you're getting at, Iro, when queer people have no choice but to self-monitor and change their behavior to minimize aggression. And I don't think that he should be speaking on that at all. Another thing that I found to be interesting was, like, as I was saying earlier, how he does not mention black women. He does. He mentions black women twice. He mentions 
Candace Owens, mm. a woman who we all dislike. I understand that, <laughs> but he goes in. He harps on her. He calls her a bitch. He says all these things. I laughed, but I did clock the fact that that's the only time he talked about a black woman so far. And then the next time he talks about a black woman is to reaffirm the rumors that were going around after Azealia Banks dropped a video talking about how she fucked Dave Chappelle. <laughs> so you're telling me the only two times this nigga brought up black women was to be like, I hate them and I fuck them. Mm -hmm. Like what? Why not pay attention to what you are also not saying? Yeah. That is what I want from Dave Chappelle. Pay attention to what you're saying, but also what you're not saying. The usefulness thing again, right? Like exactly the, the reason black says men don't at least will regard like a black woman is like, cause they, they're useful to fuck, yep. you know? And, um, he even seemed more disappointed in Candace Owens than he was like upset with her. You know, like it's like yeah. he hated. It's like he w had more hate and disrespect for John Lemon than he did Candace Owens. Mm -hmm. Her, he's just like she's smart, but she's dumb. Why don't she know better? <laughs> I wouldn't classify John Lemon as self righteous, but I, I would either. say I would say that there is a conversation to be had. Uh, I feel like Kamala Harris. Uh, <laughs> I would hey. like to have that conversation. <laughs> you know, I really would like to Start have that dancing conversation. Um, because I think literally one of our first episodes of Keep It, Lewis, uh, we talked about uh, Don Lemon's um, sort of like woke moment where he was oh, yes. talking about his Trump. Yes. You know, his, but previous Don Lemon is a fucking clown. You know, <laughs> right? And there is we, a before we, and after. Yeah, we yeah. haven't yeah. really reconciled, and I don't think anyone's really interviewed him or talked to him yet about the fact that, like, he was a clown who trafficked in respectability politics, um, who said stupid shit about like black people needing to like pull up their pants, like had wild ass comparisons of himself to like James Baldwin, and was sort of playing for the whites then to be honest, yep. um, and then switched over. And I really do want to know, like, who is checking Don Lemon um, <laughs> in real life and was like, you know what, nigga, maybe you need to read a book. <laughs> um, but I would classify that now is not self-righteous. Now it's him, you know, mm -hmm. actually trying to do the work. That's what I have to say about Don Lemon. You know, I'm really starting to kind of analyze what Dave Chappelle's purpose is supposed to be for society. And I... I really think he is for the black men. He is yes. to teach black men and to get them to fucking understand. At first, I was like, why wouldn't you mention black women? But then I realized the responsibility and also the responsibility of men to put women in situations where they can speak about that stuff. That responsibility is on a Wanda Sykes or a Monique or someone who is equipped to talk about black women. I mean, I'm not saying that they have to do that yeah. and that I expect them to. But if that were to happen, I feel like I should be putting my hopes with them. But do we want him as a black man teacher? Because, I mean, like at this point, if you're a black man teacher, who can't teach that um, all of us matter. I know. That we're all in this shit. Like, leave the classroom. You're teaching the you wrong know? thing. You yeah. know, because if you're still going to denigrate trans people or women or anything else, it's like, what, what the fuck use are you? Yeah. Especially now when our people are dying, you know? Like, it's not just black men that's dying, you know? Like, it's fucking Breonna Taylor. Yeah. It's Toyant. It's bullshit. You're right. No, you're right. It's all bullshit. And even the lack of mention of Tony McDade and Breonna Taylor, people who died before George Floyd. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. At least Tony McDade did. So there's a lot of things that, you know, again, with the purpose of Dave Chappelle and what he is, the way he still managed to, you know, use the time that the cop left his knee on George Floyd's neck that was his birth time and how Kobe's numbers were his birthday, 824, and how his grandfather was also a slave. This ability to 
say, look, people who are getting killed look like me. Don't you like me? Don't you care about my yeah. life? I think the beauty of what how he wrote that special and the artistry of it, I'm still in shock of Dave Chappelle and how he writes. Mm -hmm. But um, you're you're very valid. Everything you're saying is valid. I mean, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm just pissed off, right? I mean, because yeah. I liked it in the mm -hmm. moment. But you know, I liked it in the moment. And like talking about that history connecting to his the grandfather, like the slave, you know, whatever. It's like we just talked to Drew Dixon um, and we just watched On the Record and that ties a line from slavery and white supremacy to the subjugation of black women within the community, you know? And it's yeah. like, that's the full fucking through line and Dave Chappelle, it's like he got a textbook and um, the last third of it was cut out. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he fell asleep in that class. I don't know. No, you're right. Actually, now that we're talking about it more, the more I'm realizing, I, I thought maybe he was teaching black men, but those aren't the lessons I want black men to be taught. I need this it's to be not. They need, the they need better. Yeah. They need better teachers. Yeah. Uh, they need better teachers, period. Yeah. Read black women. Read queer black men. Read queer black True. women. Read some trans women. Mm -hmm. I am thankful in a strange way I, I, maybe this will catch on, but the idea of just putting out a, a basic half hour of comedy that you shot, like on Netflix, if you have that capability, like a week later, there's something about getting a comedy special like three and a half months after it's shot where it's just not nearly as exciting anymore. Slightly yeah. off, yeah. Yeah, so like the, the kind of, here's a, a word we use a lot on this show, stunt of it, I think <laughs> actually is kind of a cool technique. Yeah, she is a stunt queen. Really, really, truly. <laughs> Chevalier. Uh, I, I would say that 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 does introduce sort of an urgency to comedy um, in that I would love to see more quick up stand-up specials like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, I was watching it and then I was just sort of like, oh, it's over, right? You know, yeah. like it was tight. And it felt like you went back to resuming the moment we were already in. Like mm -hmm. it wanted to articulate that moment, get to that moment, and then like not say it's over or leave you with 100 morals to like comfort you with, you know? Exactly. She tried it. She tried it. Yes. She did try that. <laughs> she, her, him. Of course. <laughs> when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Let's have a little fun here, guys. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like a threat very well. Well, you know, I think this, this could be a lighthearted part of the episode. Oh, okay, I'll do my best. Good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Lewis, what is your Keep It? So I've tried to figure out who should keep it and why regarding this whole Gone with the Wind situation at HBO Max. Uh, a poster of Gone with the Wind was featured in HBO Max advertising. People had another reckoning with the material of Gone with the Wind, which, as you know, contains, among other images, like a slave getting slapped, white people enjoying white supremacy in grand ways, etc. Uh, 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 and now it's going to be on the service with a contextualizing warning ahead of time. But my keep it especially is to Rhett Butler, who is one of my least favorite characters in all of cinema. Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, at least we know she's horrible. The movie starts out, she is wearing a white dress, she looks like a cake you buy, and she is immediately like, if Cher from Clueless were just evil, that's it. If she like occasionally uh, had a witty moment or occasionally 
impressed us with some quote unquote moxie, but otherwise had no virtue to speak of and then spent four hours not finding it. Rhett Butler, <laughs> meanwhile, is a sexual predator and the, the entire movie ends up hinging on him telling Scarlett, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn, which is to say we're kind of supposed to be on his side at the end. One, you look like a weasel, so I'm no fan of you. Second of all, <laughs> your romance is disgusting. The only part of Gone with the Wind that is any good is at the beginning when Scarlett O'Hara is a funny brat. Like uh, uh, Jamee Private School Girl, if you're familiar with that show. Um, so I want to say a special keep it to him. But I also want to say a thank you to everybody who wrote amazing articles this week. And in the past five years, because I feel like Gone with the Wind comes up every so often, talking about the actual content of the film, because this week, as conservatives use Gone with the Wind as this, like, talking point about whatever, censorship or whatever they've decided they care about, it really feels like nobody has actually seen Gone with the Wind or talks about what is actually going on in that movie, because it's sort of three different movies in one, if you ever watch it. Are you kidding me? They actually (laughs) haven't seen it? It's like when... A few months ago, Trump was talking about Gone with the Wind. Right. When um, Parasite won, he was like, what happened to, you know, like, Gone with the Wind, Sunset Boulevard, etc. And I think it's just one of those movies that is a racist signpost for people. They want to hold on to it because it is the Confederacy. uh, And they think that it is a part of American history. You know, they're celebrating this thing that existed for five fucking years, okay? Like, um, shorter than Ghostbusters serial was out. And, <laughs> yes, um, about the length of CBS's The Ghost Whisperer, yes. <laughs> um, and it had so many people coming out being like, why would HBO Max take off this film that has Hattie McDaniel, the first black woman to win an Oscar? You know, you're taking away her achievement. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, you, don't give, you don't give a single fuck about Hattie McDaniel, okay? I'm sure they were only writing about it because, one, they were just Russian bots. Um, <laughs> or two, someone of the fucking DC Examiner or something wrote it and then... Everyone else started parroting it, being like, um, oh, yes, we have to support Hattie McDaniel. Um, I I have been reading um, Donald Bogle's Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, and now I have a lot to say about black Hollywood. Um, Furthermore, I don't believe conservatives can possibly be huge fans of Gone with the Wind as an actual film because that would require them. Because, well, one, one that, but two, that would... That would actually require them listening to a woman for four hours, and I don't believe that either. <laughs> also, I just want to point out that that uh, goofy HBO Max poster that you mentioned before uh, had a picture of uh, Rhett and Scarlett, and it was like, we have eight Oscars, and then it was a picture of like Oscar the Grouch and one Oscar. Where eight Oscars <laughs> beat one Oscar was the poster. It made no sense. So, <laughs> like their their whole marketing campaign was, did you know there are two definitions for the word Oscar? I had no idea. Okay, well, speaking of white people using blackness as devices whenever the fuck they want something, um, my keep it this week goes to Kristen Bell, who just wrote a book. She's an auteur now. 
and not not friend of keep it Kristen Bell. <laughs> oh no! See, Kristen wasn't ever around when I was around, so this might be free. Fall you don't give for a f- me. listen. Don't you don't give, give a, a fuck. fuck, Kristen Bell. What the <laughs> fuck are you doing, girl? I'm so exhausted. She okay. Kristen Bell wrote a book. Is it a book about acting? No. Is it a book about navigating Hollywood as a woman? No. Is it a book about having children? Is it a, is it a book about anything she's equipped to be fucking talking about? No. Solving it's, mysteries. <laughs> that's another one. Right. Being in practically children's movies or only Judd Apatow movies. That too. Um, it's a book where she's teaching her children about treating people of other skin colors with kindness, but it's called The World Needs More Purple People. You dizzy, mm. you dizzy, dizzy bitch, girl. Relax. <laughs> what? This is like, but it's actually so fitting because this is me thinking my whole life that I was in the good place, but this is definitely the bad place. We are certainly in the bad place. Like, because what are you promoting? Colorblindness? Is that what we need right now? Like, we are so far beyond that. That is a freshman year level race critical theory course. You need to understand that we are beyond that. We need people to acknowledge that we are black and then also move accordingly because we have been systemically, things have been taken away from us for years, centuries. But the whole premise of the book is that this purple person has to recognize similarities in another person before they see their own differences. Girl, (laughs) stop trying to write books and go read a fucking book or go do Frozen 3. Do something. Like, this is so stupid. You don't give, you clearly don't give a fuck about mending race relations or teaching your children because any person of color would tell you not not to do this. Where's Jamila? Where's Jamila Jamil for this? (laughs) (laughs) Why is she not saying anything? Where is William Jackson Harper? Why didn't she ask Cheedy? Cheedy is so smart. I will say that, um, Maybe she was trying to wear, raise awareness of the fact that, you know, um, purple people get eaten every day in um, this country. Mm-hmm. A lot of purple people eaters running around. Oh, uh, you're referencing that song. Okay, great. Um, the, only pur- the only purple person I can think of is Grimace from McDonald's. And I have to tell you, I haven't seen much of him in advertising recently, so I am worried about him, but I don't Truly. read the book about it. And with, yeah. with a name like Grimace, we immediately demonize him, and it's unfair. <laughs> It's unfair. His right. name should be Smile. Sad. Purple crayon. Purple Harold. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where, where, Harold, speak out. Speak on this. Yeah. So yeah, that was my keep it. And it's another thing that reminds me that as much as I love celebrities and I love giving a fuck about what they're doing, I have to have this program running in the back of my head that they are idiots sometimes. They're just symmetrical faces with pretty voices. And I like to watch them on TV and that's it. Sorry. I'm also, done. also the whole like... <laughs> I don't care if they're black, brown, purple, yellow, that thing. Truly conservative senators would say things like that in the 50s and 60s. It is an ancient um, way of avoiding the real conversation and pretending you're a quote unquote fair person. Well, speaking of speaking of celebrities, uh, my keep it (laughs) is 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 not to the group of white celebrities who made an I take responsibility for racism video. You know, it was the um, the stage play version of the Imagine video. No singing this time. Uh, my keep it is to the NAACP. Ooh, get out. Girl. Literally yes. get out. <laughs> because this video, which featured, like Sarah Paul said, Kristen Bell. Yay. <laughs> uh, Aaron Paul, Kesha, Justin Thoreau. The actress who played Haley Scott James on Run Tree Hill for some reason. Uh, <laughs> they... 
partnered with the NAACP in a video that came out last Thursday featuring the actors denouncing police brutality and checking their privilege for the hashtag I take responsibility campaign. So when this video first dropped, it's a black and white video of celebs and you see them dramatically reading something off um, screen being like, I take responsibility for every unchecked moment. (laughs) For every time it was easier to ignore than call it out for what it was. Every not so funny joke, every unfair stereotype, every blatant injustice, etc., etc. First of all, I thought we learned as a community, and I thought there was a ban in Hollywood already. Uh, I thought that every PR professional would keep cell phones out of their clients' hands so they could not make (laughs) front-facing videos about racism anymore, Uh, or the coronavirus, or anything. And after everyone was dragged to that video, I was like, what white person organized this? Who texted their friends and said, let's do this, you know? And who had to be like, nah, man, I'm not doing that. Uh, And then (laughs) we come to find out that it was organized by the NAACP. Boo. Wow. How do you, as a white celebrity, say no to the NAACP asking you, you truly uh, to make this video. You know, well, I won't mention who, but I, you know, uh, I know like at least a couple people who did say no. And you know what? Maybe those white celebrities are smarter than these other ones um, because oh. they could realize this request coming from the NAACP was dumb. But I will say the easiest way to fix this is maybe get some black people on your PR team. Because if you have a black person on your PR team, if this request comes in from the NAACP, a black person is going to be able to be like, oh, girl, this is dumb. They're going to drag <laughs> you. Um, well, also, I think something is wrong in particular with, shall we say, the performances on screen. When I think of this video, I think of Aaron Paul truly sitting like this and, you know, giving you um, a, a Eminem mid-music video deep in thought. <laughs> look. And uh, it's just overwrought. Like, in a way, the message is lost because I'm too busy taking in what looks like a Webby nominated performance and not just someone, you know, saying the thing they want to say. Listen, Aaron Paul is a great fucking actor. Totally. Um, On Breaking Bad, um, (laughs) we'll never, we'll never see him on Westworld. So cannot confirm what he's doing there with the robots. (laughs) But, um, they all seem like horrible actors doing <laughs> I know. And they, like each like, of them, the funny thing is, each of them have three fucking words, but you can still see Jessica Chastain's eyes like darting to the screen where she's reading off her lines. It's like, maybe they, sh- they should have got some soap actors to do it because they're, <laughs> they're able to like get a big script the night before and memorize um, all these pages of dialogue. <laughs> like, you are giving... <laughs> Kristen Bell, three words. And she's still like, I take responsible? <laughs> oh, let me do it again. Let me do it again with my Come own spin. On. <laughs> Memorize it. <laughs> also, one of my friends who was a comedian uh, made a video where he inserted himself into the I take responsibility video. And it, so it would go, I take responsibility. And then he would appear and go, and I take Venmo. I take PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cute. Anyway. Celebs. The whites. 
<laughs> the most and the least, never in the middle. <laughs> by the by the way, speaking of your keep it, Lewis, uh, Gone with the Wind was then one of the top movies on iTunes after all this drama about it. So They're like, I'm gonna see white, my movie. White, white people went out and, and paid to rent it. Honestly, you know what you should do if you're thinking about Gone with the Wind? Truly look up the life of Hattie McDaniel, particularly after this movie and what she had to navigate in terms of like other black actors finding the roles she took problematic and her famous quote, I could be paid $700 a week to play a maid or $7 a week to be one. It's a whole interesting saga that routinely involves the NAACP. So, I mean, let's all get educated on her also. And that's our show. Um, Thanks again to Drew Dixon for joining us. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.